that sweet aroma I'm bold and beautiful I can hardly wait to taste Early morning Something wonderful Is about to make my day Hey! Give me a good cup of coffee Give me a word that rocks me a whole lot of Jesus and a little caffeine. World waits out the front door. Let it wait just a bit more. Because I need Jesus and a little caffeine. Hello, everybody out there in podcast land, and welcome to another episode of Jesus and Coffee. Amen. My name is Jay Brooks, and I'm your host for this devotional Bible study. I'm a Christian, a husband, a father, and a grandfather. I love Jesus, and I love coffee, hence the name of this broadcast. I have my Bible open in front of me in a nice hot mug of dark roast coffee, so I have everything I need to start my day. This isn't really about coffee, it's all about Jesus. I just drink coffee while I'm doing it, and I happen to love this song by John Waller. My wife and I met him in August of 2017 at a free concert he gave in a church here in New England. We had a nice conversation and he wasn't trying to get rid of us. He was genuinely interested in getting to know us a little bit. Check out his music and if you have a chance to go see him I highly recommend it. He is a good Christian brother who loves Jesus and loves coffee so that makes him my kind of guy. So let's get things started, shall we? Today, I will once again be reading from the English Standard Version, or ESV from short. I'm going to read John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10 once again, because I'm still talking about the empty tomb. Let's pray and get into the Word. Almighty God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you to open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your Holy Word. Change us with your word because we desperately need to be changed. Speak to us through your word because we desperately need to hear your voice and reveal yourself to us from your word because we desperately need to know you. Amen. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed, for as they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their houses. The word of the Lord. Amen. In the last episode of Jesus and Coffee, Amen, I promised to tell you about people who attempted to disprove the resurrection which is, in fact, to disprove Christianity as a whole. The first one will be Gilbert West, who lived from 1703 to 1756. As a student at Oxford, West set out to debunk the Bible's account of Christ's resurrection. Instead, 
Having proved to himself that Christ did rise from the dead, he was unable to do so and became a Christian. West published his conclusions in the book Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1747. On the flyleaf, he had the following printed, Blame not before thou hast examined the truth. Next up is George Littleton, who lived from 1709 to 1773. As a young man, he set out to prove that Paul was not converted, as the Bible states. Instead, he wrote a book containing evidence that Paul was indeed converted, and that his conversion is evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. The book was titled Observations on the Conversion and Apostleship of St. Paul, published in 1747. Littleton observed that from an earthly perspective, Paul had absolutely nothing to gain and everything to lose by testifying that he had seen the risen Christ. He was giving up his position and prestige as a Jewish religious leader. He joined the despised Christian sect and was hounded, mocked, and persecuted for the rest of his life, finally paying the ultimate price for his Christian faith, death. Then we have Simon Greenleaf, who lived from 1783 to 1853. Greenleaf was a royal professor of law at Harvard University and one of the most celebrated legal minds in American history. His treatise on the law of evidence is still considered the greatest single authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. As a law professor, he determined to expose the myth of the resurrection of Christ once and for all but his thorough examination forced him to conclude, instead, that Jesus did rise from the dead. In 1846, he published an examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. One of the most celebrated minds in the legal profession of the past two centuries took the resurrection of Christ to trial, diligently examined the evidence, and judged it to be an established fact of history. One of Greenleaf's points is that nothing but the resurrection can explain the dramatic change in Christ's disciples and their willingness to suffer and die for their testimony, much like what I told you yesterday about Chuck Colson. We also have William Mitchell Ramsey, who lived from 1851 to 1939. Ramsey was a renowned archaeologist and New Testament scholar from Scotland. He was knighted by the British Crown for his work in archaeology. He was raised an atheist and as a brilliant student at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland and in Oxford University in England, he studied under theological modernists and skeptics who disbelieved the Bible. It was assumed that the Bible was not historically accurate and that it contained a large portion of mythology. It was also believed that the Book of Acts was not written until 150 AD, about a century after the events it describes. When Ramsey began archaeological and historical research in Asia Minor in 1881, he expected and hoped to find more evidence against the Bible. He spent 15 years researching and digging, only to end up being convinced of the incredible accuracy of the book. He converted to Christianity and called Luke, who as you may know wrote the Acts of the Apostles, one of the greatest historians to ever live. He, was written, he has written several books on the subject, which have yet to be refuted. His work caused an outcry from atheists because they had been eagerly awaiting his results into proving the validity of the Bible. Well, that was easy for me to say, huh? Next, we have Albert Morrison. Albert lived from 1881 to 1950. He was a lawyer, journalist, and novelist who grew up in Stratford-on-Avon, England. He was deeply affected by the skepticism of the times, particularly the Acts, 
the attacks on the Bible by theological liberalism and Darwinism. After becoming a lawyer, he set out to write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead, he was converted and wrote a book in defense of the resurrection entitled Who Moved the Stone, which is still in print today. He wrote the book under the name of Frank Morrison. Next up is Richard D. Lumsden, Ph.D., who lived from 1938 to 1997. Dr. Lumsden was converted from a Darwinian atheist to a Bible-believing Christian after he was challenged by one of his students. He decided to check out the evidence for himself. A professor of parasitology and cell biology, Lumsden was dean of the graduate school at Tulane University. He published many scholarly papers and was the writer of the highest award for parasitology, the Henry Baldwin Ward Medal in 1975. Dr. Lumsden was fully grounded in Darwinian philosophy and had no reason or desire to consider Christianity. Science was his faith. The facts and only the facts. But at the apex of his profession, he had enough integrity to check out the facts and made a difficult choice to go where the facts led him, against what he had been taught, against what he himself taught. His life took a dramatic turnaround from Darwinist to creationist and from atheist to Christian. All through his career, he believed Darwinian evolution was an established principle of science, and he took great glee in ridiculing Christian beliefs. One day, he heard that Louisiana had passed a law requiring equal time for creation with evolution, and he was flabbergasted. How stupid, he thought, and how evil. He used this occasion to launch into a tirade against creationism in his classroom and to give them his best eloquence in support of Darwinism. Little did he know he had a formidable opponent in class that day. No, not a silver-tongued orator to engage him in a battle of wits. That would have been too easy. This time it was a gentle, polite young lady. This student went up to him after class and cheerfully examined, exclaimed to him, Great lecture, Doc. Say, I wonder if I can make an appointment with you. I have some questions about what you said, and I just want to get the facts straight. Dr. Lumsden, flattered with his student's positive approach, agreed on a time they could meet in his office. On the appointed day, the student thanked him for his time and started in. She did not argue with anything he had said about evolution in class, but just began asking a series of questions. Let me add here in the middle of his story that the way this girl goes about what she does is the best way to approach a skeptic. Ask questions. Don't argue with them. Don't refute what they say. Ask open-ended questions that will make them think. Now listen to this young lady. How did life arise? Isn't DNA too complex to form by chance? Why are there gaps in the fossil record between major species? What are the missing links between apes and man? She didn't act judgmental or provocative. She just wanted to know. Lumsden, unabashed, gave the standard evolutionary answers to the questions. But something about this interchange began making him very uneasy. He was prepared for a fight, but not for a gentle, honest set of questions. As he listened to himself spouting the typical evolutionary responses, he thought, this does not make any sense. What I know about biology is contrary to what I'm saying. When the time came to go, the student picked up her book, smiled and said, thanks, Doc, and left. On the outside, Dr. Lumsden appeared confident, but on the inside, he was devastated. He knew that everything he had told this student was wrong. As a result of this meeting, he began to investigate the beliefs, and as a result, he became a Christian. Next up is Josh McDowell, who was born in 1939 and is still alive. As I write this, Josh said, as I write this, he's still alive. 
boy, oh boy, I'm fumbling today, but I'm going to continue and press on. Josh set out to write a paper in college to expose Christianity as a myth, but ended up being so convinced that he became a Christian himself and wrote the influential book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. This book was ranked 13th in Christianity Today's list of most influential evangelical books published after World War II. He has since written over 150 books, including More Than a Carpenter, and is still active in Christian apologetics. By the way, I called his ministry one time, and he answered the phone himself. A very humble guy. I hope this information proves useful to my listeners. Tomorrow I intend to continue with others whose lives would change when they began to investigate Christianity in the empty tomb. Until next time, thank you for listening to Jesus and Coffee. Amen. And may God richly bless you.